Well, we continue our Mark series heading into a brand new chapter in chapter 12. So go ahead, grab those Bibles, have them open in front of you. Really important that you do have your own Bibles open in front of you because we don't want you to just take my word for things. We want you to see the truth of God's word and let God's word speak with authority. So do have your Bibles open at Mark chapter 12. Now, last week we saw how the religious leaders that made up the Sanhedrin, that highest legal and religious body, questioned Jesus. Jesus and his authority. They were given a chance by Jesus to see that his authority came from the Creator God, yet they rejected that truth and ultimately made fools of themselves before the crowd. The significant lesson that we learnt is that God has ultimate authority over our lives, and the question comes down to whether we allow or give that authority to God, or whether we naively give it to somebody else or something else. And so really the challenge for us last week was are we giving God authority over our lives? As we head into today's passage, I really want you to see two important lessons. Firstly, God is patient with you and he is ever beckoning you toward him. Secondly, that although yes, God is patient, giving second, third, fourth chances, there will come a time where that patience is tested and it will end up in judgment. Why is it so important to recognise these two things? Well, we here at Lincoln Baptist want you to meet Jesus. We want you to be saved from your sins. We want you to live for Jesus so that when you come to that judgment day, you won't be looking at eternal suffering in hell. You will be looking at eternal security in heaven with God because you have humbled yourself before him and you have found salvation for your sins. Essentially, the passage today is a plea for you to not test God to his very limits. Instead, to come to God humbly and know him as personal Lord and Saviour. So with that in mind, we're going to jump into our passage. We're in that new chapter, Mark chapter 12, and we're going to begin from verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. Well, verse 1 flows on from chapter 11. See how Jesus is speaking to them. Specifically, Jesus is presenting a challenge to those leaders that make up the Sanhedrin in chapter 11. He is addressing these leaders who have just made a fool of themselves before the crowd. And he makes use of a parable to teach them a significant lesson. Remember, a parable is a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. And this particular parable begins with a vineyard, one that is protected by a fence, one that has everything it needs to produce its fruit, and one that has a tower so it's guarded from potential thieves. This vineyard was then leased to tenant farmers with the owner living elsewhere, which is a fairly common practice in New Testament times to, to rent out, lease out your farm or your vineyard. Now, the Sanhedrin listening in to this parable would be acutely aware of its significance. Remember, they were tasked to know the Old Testament and to know scriptures. So you see, they would have known that Isaiah 5, 7 says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. It's no coincidence that Jesus is using a vineyard in this parable. He is speaking directly to the house of Israel, to the people of God, to the religious leaders themselves. Isaiah 5 is ultimately a, a, a kind of prophecy of judgment. So it's not much of a leap to then say that this parable is a parable of doom. 
a consequence of the religious leaders rejecting the truth of Jesus at the end of chapter 11. So the significance here is, is very clear. Judgment and doom for Israel because they are clearly doing a repetition of Isaiah 5. Now, as we go through each section of this parable, it's important to see that the vineyard belongs to God. And therefore, as we go through the passage, we get to see the characteristics of God in this passage. See how in verse one, that God is generous. He has given everything to this vineyard to help the fruit grow. And it wants for nothing. It has protection. It has all the resources it needs. God has not only been generous in this parable and generous to Israel over the years, but as we head into the word of God, we recognise that God is generous to us today. 2 Peter 1 verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We need not look further than God himself for all we need in this life and the life to come. So in verse 1 alone, we see the generosity of God and we see that this is a fairly significant negative parable that is challenging the religious leaders of the time. Verse 2. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some fruit from the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. Now these tenant farmers would have paid an agreed regular rent to the farm owner. However, at about the five-year mark, it was the owner's right to take some of the fruit and to see how good it was. Potentially, he may even take some of the wine that has been pressed, using it or selling it on. And in this particular parable, the tenant farmers refuse the owner's rights. They arrogantly think, well, the owner's at a distance. We can do whatever we want. We can ultimately ignore him. Yet their wickedness went much further than just ignoring the requests. They beat and killed the messengers of the owner. Now, remember this parable has spiritual significance. Let's turn to Luke chapter 11 and see that significance. Luke 11 from verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you built their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. Israel's history was full of leaders killing prophets, the very messengers of God. God sent messenger after messenger, just like this parable, and they were beat and killed, just like this parable. Jesus is essentially giving a history lesson to these leaders of the Sanhedrin. What happened back then is happening again now. History is repeating itself. You see, it's easy to look back and see the failures of those who have come before us much harder to look at the current generation and see the failures in the current generation. Again, see the characteristics though of God on display in these verses. He is trusting. He gave the vineyard to the tenant farmers and gave them freedom to grow and develop the farm. 
He is patient. He gave them a chance, another chance, more chances for the farmers to pay what is due. God is patient with them. And what we learn from that is that God is patient with each one of us. 2 Peter from chapter 3 verse 9. He, Lord, is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any would perish, but all should reach repentance. God's desire is that many would come to him and be saved through Jesus Christ. He is patiently waiting, patiently drawing people close to him so that they would find new life in him. And this is the generosity of God, is that he seeks all men and women to come to him. This is not for a select few. This is open to all. This is the trust of God to show that there is one way. This is the patience of God to bring people to him chance after chance after chance. Let's continue into verse six. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. If you would receive the father, that being the owner, then you must receive the son, being the heir to the farm. And so in this parable, the son was sent by the father to the, to the tenant farmers to gather those Jews that were to come to the owner. But notice here, this huge indication that Jesus is that son, for he is the one and only beloved son of the owner. And there's a finality in his coming. There are no other options available. Everyone else has been treated with contempt and therefore it is only the son that can now be sent. A huge indication here that this is Jesus himself talking about Jesus and how he was sent to this world. And how do they respond? They kill the son in a desire to keep on the vineyard as their own possession. Now, what strikes me as significant here is that they didn't kill the son because they didn't know him. You know, possibly thinking he was a robber or even some form of insignificant messenger. No, they killed him because they knew exactly who he was. Jesus is telling these religious leaders who are listening in that deep down they know that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, but their wicked hearts are taking them to arresting Jesus, to killing Jesus, so they can somehow hold on to their own power, their own legacy, and lift and elevate themselves up before the people. So this is not about ignorance. If anything, this is about arrogance, saying that they just simply don't care who Jesus is because they want the power and they want the possessions. Verse nine, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this in scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. There's this graphic ending to the tenant farmers, isn't it? They ha will be destroyed, or as Matthew's gospel writes it, these wretched tenants will be put to death. You see, as much as the owner has had patience with them along the way, it was now time for justice. Yet another characteristics of God. His justice means that sin and wrongdoing will not go unpunished. The wickedness of these tenants was met with a swift judgment. And so without Christ, we face that justice of God as well. Yet this graphic uh, wicked tenants being put to divine justice 
to death, to be removed from what the blessing is, is fairly extreme. Yet for us, there is still hope. Notice how in the vineyard, yes, we have tenant farmers. Yes, we have them being punished. But notice what comes next. The vineyard is given to others. The Lord's people would no longer be Israel, but instead anyone who would place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In other words, now that the religious people have rejected Jesus, he will now be given to all those who would humble themselves before him and they will be blessed by becoming the children of God. This uh, change is further developed in verse 10 with a direct quote from Psalm 118 verse 22 where Jesus describes himself as a stone that the builders or Israel have rejected. Yet this rejected stone would become the cornerstone or the strength or the very foundation of the church. Romans 9.25, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people and her who was not the beloved I will call beloved. There's a complete shift here. It's no longer Israel, these religious leaders, this Sanhedrin, but the church that will be blessed, the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus will be the strength and the foundation of that church. He will be the head of that church. He will be the leader of that church. And we will come in a few moments uh, to look at this meaning a little bit more in depth. But for now, turn your attention to verse 11 in Mark 12. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvellous in our eyes. Do you see, all we can do is marvel at the work of God. The Lord is in control and it's the Lord's plan and the Lord's purpose that will be fulfilled. And to some extent, we are to just step back and watch what the Lord does and marvel in his glory. Romans 11.33, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. We cannot begin to understand the wisdom and knowledge of God. Even as we study and look in depth and look at the judgments of God, all we can do is marvel at the wondrous deeds of God. And in this parable of the tenant farmers, here is patience, here is generosity, here is trust, here is justice, here is the grace of God in bringing this vineyard to others. This is God and we are to marvel at his actions. Verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The Pharisees wanted Jesus gone. And when you read they wanted to arrest Jesus, ultimately what they're wanting is to destroy him through crucifixion. An arrest was only a means to an end, and the end was the death of Jesus. Yet notice how the Pharisees, who often just didn't have a clue what Jesus was talking about, have started to pick up that the parable was about them. They knew Isaiah 5. They understood what Jesus was saying. And even though they understood this, even though they grasped this, and even though they had this extra chance to accept Jesus and repent from their sins, they once again refused the truth, rejecting Jesus and walking away from the opportunity to be saved. And so this 12 verse parable, this section of Mark's gospel really is a, a cry out to not be like the Pharisees who reject, 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 not out of ignorance, but out of arrogance because they have elevated themselves above everybody else. 
As we have now drawn uh, the kind of passage to close today, we must not rush away from it, just kind of pointing the fingers at the Pharisees. Instead, we need to see the clear teachings of Jesus here and to help us become Christ-like in our daily walks, we need to apply it to our own lives. And so really I have three questions to pose to you today. The first is this, are you running the danger of testing God's patience? Are you running the danger of testing God's patience? The Pharisees were given chance after chance and we learned that the Lord is patient, seeking everyone to come to him and be saved. Yet in this parable, what we see is this patient of the tenant farmers did come to an end and they were left in judgment, which brought about their destruction. Are you running the danger of being like the Pharisees and testing the Lord's patience? Do you put your decision to follow Jesus off until, well, a later date, uh, some future time? Do you allow sin to continue to infect your life, drawing you away from Jesus? Are you continually caught up in the cycle of sin and are unwilling or simply don't care to shift to Jesus? The Lord's patience only goes so far. Hebrews 10.27 says, It is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. In the most loving and sincere way I can say this, you need to understand that you will die one day. There's an appointed day for each of us to come to the end of our lives. And we do not know when that will be. It could be today. It could be next week. You may have another 10 years. After our death comes judgment, where the Lord will either see us as beloved children, saved through the power of Christ, or wicked rejectors of the truth. Are you really willing to test the Lord when you do not even know when you will come to an end on this earth? Just for a moment, imagine if at the end of this sermon, it was your allotted time to die. You have 10 minutes left. Would you be right with God? Would he look upon you as a faithful servant of Christ? Or would he see an arrogant individual who thought they would get away with it? Would he see an individual who endured trial and denied themselves to follow Jesus? Or would he see someone who professed with their mouth, but in their heart had nothing but hatred and wickedness towards others? Do you really want to run this danger? For there's only two locations that come after judgment, hell and heaven. Where are you going to end up? The second question I want to ask, is Jesus the cornerstone of our church? Is Jesus the cornerstone of our church? This is a really important question to ask and I want you to be uh, very clear as I'm going through this. I haven't said the church. That is clearly what the passage teaches, that Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. I'm talking about our church, the localized body of believers here at Lincoln Baptist Church. You see, the Pharisees stood at the temple, they proclaimed the law, and even legalistically led others to honour that law. Yet scratch the surface, and what we see is they were wicked to the core. They looked like godly individuals, but inside they had been captured by Satan. Consider our church at Lincoln Baptist. We have a cross on this video, signifying the importance of Jesus in everything we say. Our church building has a cross at the centre of it, signifying the importance of Jesus in our services. We preach and teach the Bible on a daily basis. We have reading programmes, discipleship groups and prayer running through every aspect of our church. Yet the question remains, is Jesus the cornerstone? 
if we scratch below the surface, is Jesus our strength and our foundation? Is he the one we truly rely on? As the famous song goes, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song, this cornerstone, this solid ground. It is so easy for the church to slip into making something else our hope and our solid ground. It might be a ministry we run. It might be an opinion that we hold dear to. It might even be our sense of entitlement. We must not, we cannot make anything else the cornerstone of the church. William Tiptaft, a Baptist in the 1800s said, if you had a thousand crowns, you should put them on the head of Christ. And if you had a thousand tongues, they should all sing his praise for he is worthy. Do you see, we must as a church be resolute on Jesus. We cannot slip. He deserves every crown. He deserves every success. He deserves all the glory. Not one amongst our ranks is greater than he. No one deserves more praise than Jesus. And who is Jesus? He is the word of God, John 1.1. 1, 1. He is in the beginning as the word and every word we have in scripture is Jesus. Now, personally, I'm often mocked amongst liberal Christians for taking the word of God and his truth so seriously. I'm deemed legalistic, over the top, a bit out there. There are folks even in our own church who think I go a little bit too far and I need to loosen things up. Friends, let me tell you something very clearly. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only truth, the only way, and the only life. I will preach the word of God all day long and Jesus' name will be lifted high in this church. For he is the cornerstone, he is the foundation, and upon the rock of Christ, this church will grow. And if you're in any doubt, know this. Lincoln Baptist is all about Jesus, all for Jesus, and entirely in Jesus. Third and finally, I have one more question for you today. Will you reject or accept? Will you reject or accept? As I wrap up, I want to talk directly to anyone right now who is listening or watching who's not a Christian yet. Today, I pose to you a life-altering question. Will you accept Jesus as Lord and Saviour or will you reject him? There is absolutely no middle ground, no sitting on the fence, acceptance or rejection. The Bible tells us that we are wicked in our sin, that you cannot do anything to save yourselves from the punishment that we deserve because we've wronged God. Yet Jesus willingly went to the cross where he took all of our sin, past, present and future, and nailed it to the cross. He took the punishment that we deserved, that you deserve, and in his death that punishment, that wrath of God was poured out. Yet three days later, he rose victoriously and is now Jesus, that living God, who is our salvation. We can turn to him in humility, repent, say sorry with deep conviction over our sin, seek forgiveness through Jesus, and he is faithful to forgive our sins. Friends, will you accept Jesus as Lord and Saviour? You don't know if you'll even make it to the end of this day. Will you run the danger of being on the wrong side of God? I encourage you, and in fact, I think I implore you to come to Jesus and find salvation. Become a child of God today. Do it now and do it without delay. Commit your life to Jesus. Pray before him now, Lord, I am wretched and wicked. My sin has made me unclean before you. I repent from my sin. <clears throat> Forgive me, save me, make me clean again. 
save me from my sin, transform my heart, make me a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, my Saviour. If today you have committed your life to Jesus, please do email in or message us through social media. We want to welcome you firstly into the family of God and then secondly into our church here at Lincoln Baptist Church. And if you want to know more about salvation in Jesus, again, email in. We want to lead you to Jesus and wonderful life to the full in his name. Let me close with a final warning to anyone who would sit on the fence and try and reject Jesus. A quote from Charles Spurgeon. If you do not hear the well-beloved Son of God, you have rejected your last hope. He is God's ultimatum. Nothing remains when Christ is refused. No one else can be sent. If Christ be rejected, hope is rejected. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the wonderful gospel message of Jesus Christ, who came to save sinners like me, who came to save sinners like us. Father, we praise you for that wonderful gospel that we can grasp hold of and have confidence and assurance in. Father, we pray that as a church, we would remain resolute on Jesus, knowing he is the cornerstone. He is our foundation. He is our strength. He is the solid ground that is building this church upon. And Father, we pray that we would not test your patience that we would live a holy and pleasing life before you. Father, help us do so. Help us be a church that seeks after you with such zeal. Father, help us be sound in doctrine. Help us be sound in our grip of the gospel. Help us be sound in our faithfulness to serve you as ambassadors of the, that gospel. And Father, we pray that as it says at the end of Acts 2, every day you will add to the number that is in your kingdom and you would bless us by using us to do so. Father, we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.